before I uh, talk tonight about Anatta and the Four Noble Truths, um, just see if anybody has any comments or questions about the meditation on the five aggregates that you'd like to share with the group or ask if you come up. Caleb. How are consciousness and perception different? So perception is this particular activity of mind. And uh, in a way, just so you know, you know, you can't pull it out distinct from consciousness, distinct from feeling, distinct from mental formations. It's more like uh, highlighting a particular aspect of what we're calling mind. And perception is that aspect that is labeling or recognizing or remembering. And that remembering, that recognizing process, of course, is being, uh, it's really coming out of the past experiences. So when I look at you and in the scene, the mind recognizes that. And in a sense, my mind says, oh, that's Caleb or that's a guy, or, you know, however it might identify or recognize that particular visual image. And consciousness is the fact that they're seeing being known, that, that there's knowing here, something's being known. And so consciousness can't be, none of these things can be seen or known apart from the others. And in particular, that's true with consciousness. In a way, we know there's consciousness because there's knowing, you know, that I am seeing you, right? So that means that that visual experience is available to be known. And that capacity to know we call consciousness. You know, that an object can be known, that an experience can be known, we call consciousness. Gail, did you have a thought? Uh, in the before we were done with the series, and you guys talked about how the Buddha actually would identify whether or not there was a self. We're going to go to that sutta tonight. This might sound all silly, but um, when when you were talking about when we were going through the meditation, I, I had this sense of is a lot of this perception or, or consciousness coming from this part of my body that sits on top of my shoulders. And is that because I know that there's this thing inside this thing that's called the brain? I mean, I, um, you know, how do I know it's not my big toe that's, um, uh, that's, that's feeling these things? Well, I think that we have to understand that the whole idea of materiality and brain and organs and that these are concepts. And uh, that the subjective, we're really interested here in the subjective experience, not in some objective description of what's going on here. So is it my conditioning that makes it feel like it's here? Yeah, but whatever that is, that's something being known. And you can directly know that subjective experience, that it's like my mind is up here, or my consciousness is up here, or knowing is up here. Whatever that experience is for you subjectively, that is something being known. It's either sensations being known, or there's a thought there being known, 
like the thought that my mind is located here, that's a thought being known. Where's that thought being known? You know, what's being known here. So even the locality itself is a construct. The Sutta study group we're reading the book The Island and the chapter we're reading next is around this um, teaching on non-locality. That it's a construct, like time is a construct. The past, the future, now, even the word now, that's a construct. We don't need the word now, you know, as opposed to what? I mean, it's always, <laughs> but see, when we have the word now, then all of a sudden we have the idea not now, <laughs> which reinforces the idea of past and future and all these things, which don't exist, exist except here, right? The past, the future only exist here as ideas here being known. As, yeah, yeah, as well as here. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The closer I get to having moments of feeling, letting go of self and floating, it does feel uh, like a little bit like floating. And, um, you know, gravity is a rule of this world, of this where we are, but there's not really gravity. Well, is there gravity in outer Space. I mean, is consciousness subject to the laws of physics, or is it somehow that there's a place, there's a way to touch a place that doesn't abide by the laws of physics while you're living in the laws of physics? But what are the laws of physics without a sense of identity? Do you know what I mean? It's like uh, the question, like. Uh, you know, does the law of physics apply, assumes this world of being, you know, like being somebody to whom they might apply to. If we're not, if the mind's not identifying... Maybe uh, it's like atoms. Hmm? Like the atoms, not like a person, but like the atoms in your body. Like, you know, like... But see, that you can't, you can't do what you're doing, cause you're, no, because you're just using concepts. It's like atoms in the body, atoms are a concept, body's a concept. So remember, the Dharma is about our subjective experience. And it's actually, that's what's relevant. What's actually relevant to us, just on an ordinary level, is our subjective experience. But we keep wanting to deal with our problems, our subjective problems, by understanding things objectively. As opposed to getting interested in our subjective experience, which is here and now. But it's just floating, like, like suspended, like, mm -hmm. like the body is breaking apart. Or the body is not what we think it is. Right. But that's okay, because we want to know what it is, not what we think it is. We want to let it be what it is. And it, and it the experience, the subjective experience of the body or the subjective experience of the body and the mind, won't be like our conditioned idea of what the body and mind is. Because they're two different things. And I always use this example, I forget who used it for me, but you know, in the same way that a menu is not like the food, the 
objective experience, like what we think my life is about, like my mind is here and I'm this and I'm that and this is what's happening, isn't, although it may in some sense be related to the subjective experience, they're very, they're sort of exist in different realms, different universes really. The world of objective experience, which is our world of concepts, is different than the subjective experience, the direct, immediate, subjective experience of body and mind, or this. Other reflections on your practice? Yeah, Kay, and then go again. Um, well, since Sunata uh, emptiness is is there for a reason because the experience of the, the the experience of the body and mind when clinging or grasping falls away. It's like even as an intellectual exercise, the solidity we experience both in terms of our concepts. You know, I'm a male, or I I live over there, or whatever we might say that defines us in some way. Well, the experience of our body and sort of being identified or grasping, clinging those ideas about our body or those experiences that we imagine the body is having. What is the body and mind without clinging? What is this without clinging? It is like space or emptiness. And so that will be our subjective experience, or that is the subjective experience of non-grasping. And this is a, a contemplation, you know, what is the experience of this, or what is the experience of body and mind, without grasping? And if you're not interested in that, why are you doing this practice? Because this is what this practice is about. We're interested in being liberated from the ideas, the fixation or the identification with the ideas we have about this, liberated into the experience of this, this free of grasping, this moment, this whatever you want to call this, free of grasping. That's what Nibbana is. It is the cessation of grasping or the release, the ending of clinging. And so the experience of the body and the mind, or the experience of a moment free of grasping, is something to awaken to, or to realize. Yeah, and then we'll go on. Yeah, I know really about coming this week, and I'm being interviewed by Brian Green, which is getting back into physics, and you just thought I don't go there, but when Brian Green was talking about, you know, string theory and deep space and stuff like that, and time and in space. I think for me what it does is it just shows how it's all evolving, it's all changing, and if you don't get too stuck on a concept, it looks so much different. And then he was actually talking about, you know, how you live in a three-dimensional world, like he kind of knows from a physics standpoint, it's 11, 
dimensions, but you still operate in these things. For me, it was just like this, a way to just kind of be open to what we're doing here in terms of what's my reality, what's my construct, and just kind of playing with how silly it all is. Not saying that I'm there, but just mm -hmm. feeling the silliness and the openness. Yeah, I, I kind of see uh, modern physics and kind of opening to that is a little bit like people who back in the day took hallucinogenic drugs. <laughs> because it's like, they talk about non-locality and things like this, and when you read this, and you know, and they've spent billions of dollars doing these different experiments, and they're confirmed, you know, by other people, so, and they seem smart, so it like blows our mind a little bit. Also, it's not what we think. And it's a little bit like the experiences people have using some drugs, where the chemicals or whatever shifts uh, one's understanding, and and the result is we don't believe this, the sort of conventional, you know, the ideas the mind conventionally has about this. We don't believe them as an absolute, as the truth. It's just the convention. It's what my mind does out of habit. It sees this way, understands this way. But we know that, we may not know what it is, but we know that this isn't uh, uh, the, the ultimate truth or yeah. the underlying truth. And it's okay if you can't grasp because even Brian Green was saying, I'm not sure that we're really smart enough to get all of the physics of this to know. Yeah. It's okay. Well, let's look at some of these uh, teachings. I have a number of things to read, and I want to get everyone an article, but uh, for some reason my I can't get into my Tricycle account to get one of the archived articles. Does anybody have access to the archived articles at Tricycle? Maybe you can uh, make a copy of this digital, you know, just and send it around. Um, but it's an article that Andy Olensky wrote in 2005, spring 2005, called Self as a Verb. <coughs> it's quite good. I'll read a little bit of it tonight. And I mentioned that, uh, and we talked about this, I think, the first week, that um, instead of the Buddha, instead of presenting the anatta teachings as the framework, he really presented karma as the framework. And anatta, the not-self, was a way to uh, be skillful in a world of karma. So we live in a conditioned world, something that unfolds conditionally. And the question is how to be skillful, how to be free in that lawful, interdependent unfolding of this conditioned world. How could we be skillful and free, happy in that world? So it's a very pragmatic question. The Buddha did not set out, as Gail intimated a, a few minutes ago, he didn't set out to address the metaphysical question, is there or is there not a self? It was more like, when is it skillful to use the perception of self, and when is it not helpful to use the perception of self? And that makes a lot of sense to me, given the other teachings of the Buddha. You know, he was uh, he was always seemed very pragmatic about how we address things, which 
you know, brings us to this particular famous discourse um, with Vachagota. The wanderer Vachagota approached the Blessed One and said to him, How is it now, Master Gotama? Is there a self? When this was said, the Blessed One was silent. Then, Master Gotama, is there no self? A second time, the Blessed One was silent. Then the wanderer, Vachagota, rose from his seat and departed. Then not long after he had left, Venerable Ananda said to the Blessed One, Why is it, Venerable Sir, that when the Blessed One was questioned by the wanderer, he did not answer? If Ananda, when I was asked by the wanderer, Vatsagota, is there a self? I had answered, there is a self. This would have been siding with those ascetics and Brahmins who are eternalists. Like there's a soul that continues on and on. And if when I was asked by him, is, is there no self? I had answered, there is no self. This would have been siding with those ascetics and Brahmins who are annihil, uh, annihilists. That, you know, you're born and then you die and it's, that's it. Nothing continues. So he didn't, he didn't want to give any support for this person to, to get caught in the idea that something, there is something eternal, something that goes beyond this life. And he didn't want to give any evidence or any support for him thinking that at death, whatever there is, ceases. You know, whatever self there is, it ends at death. And then he goes on, he says, If Ananda, when I was asked by him, is there a self, I had answered, there is a self. Would this have been consistent on my part with the arising of the knowledge that all phenomena are non-self? No venerable sir. So it seems like the Buddha is saying here, you know, if I said there is a self, that wouldn't correspond with my actual subjective experience, that when I look at my actual subjective experience, um, my what I see, what I come to know is that all phenomena are not self. And then he ends by saying, and if, when I was asked by him, is there no self, I had answered, there is no self, the wanderer, Vachagota, already confused, would have fallen into even greater confusions, thinking, it seems that the self I formerly had does not exist now. Right? I was somebody, but now, having heard the Buddha, I realize whatever I was doesn't exist anymore. Because the insight, like when the insight arises in the mind, as I mentioned last week with the snake rope simile, like what the mind always thought was a snake, then the mind realized not only is it not a snake, but it never was a snake. It's it's a real shift in how the mind is conceiving. A couple more passages from the Buddha. Practitioners, you may well cling to that doctrine of self. That would arouse, that would not arouse sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair in one who clings to it. But do you see any such doctrine of self? And the bhikkhus, the practitioners, responded, no venerable sir. Good practitioners, neither do I. So the Buddha is saying here, 
you may well cling to that doctrine of self that would not arouse sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair, right? Feel free to use self as a concept that doesn't cause stress. Do you see such a doctrine of self? The practitioners, the monks said no, and the Buddha agreed. Here's another passage. How does personality view come to be? And he answered the question. Here, an untaught ordinary person regards phenomena as self, or self as possessed of phenomena, or phenomena as in-self, or self as phenomena. That is how personality view comes into, comes to be. How does personality view not come to be? Here, a well-taught, noble disciple does not regard phenomena as self or self as possessed of phenomena, or phenomena as in-self, or self as phenomena. That is how personality view does not come to be. So this is our practice, right? I mean, we don't say it this way because it, it sounds a little philosophical and, uh, you know, it would just cause the mind to want to think. But basically, mindfulness is a clever strategy to drop the view of self. You know, if we said, if the, if the instructions were okay, you know, don't take, like the Buddha says here, you know, don't regard phenomena as self, or self as possessed of phenomena, or phenomena as in self, or self as phenomena. You know, if that was the instruction instead of, be awake to your breath coming in, be awake to your breath going out. When thinking arises, notice that it's just thinking being known, seeing being known, hearing being known. If we got those other instructions, you know, it'd be confusing to us because we'd be wondering, you know, what does that mean? And we'd think a lot. But basically when we're being asked to be mindful, when we're encouraged to be mindful, we're abandoning that whole, all of the... Uh, habits of the mind to take phenomena as self. It's like we can't actually know the in-breath in a very simple, direct, immediate way and be taking it as self. Because that selfing activity is in the way of actually being present with the sensations of the in-breath. And so when we give ourselves to the training, I was saying this in the uh, Sunday night talk last night, last few uh, talks I gave on this particular chapter in Joseph Goldstein's book. You know, and he's uh, in this section of the book on the Satipatthana Sutta, we're talking about mindfulness of body, mindfulness of postures, mindfulness of breath. And I was, I've been saying a lot like, we just have to follow the instructions. I mean, if we actually do the instructions, view, the view in the mind will shift. So one way or another, we have to, you know, break the habit of the mind doing whatever it's doing, which allows or supports the continuation of being trapped. Um, one of the articles I already have up for us to read is the Not-Self Strategy by, by 
Tanisaro Bhikkhu. It's not a very long, just, uh, actually this one is a little long, 25 pages. <laughs> I just copied four of them. <laughs> That's why it looks short. Um, but it's good. And I mentioned this, a uh, few things from this article, I think, first week, about not-self as a strategy to be used in appropriate time in appropriate ways. He says in this article, it makes sense to look at perceptions of self and not-self as types of karma, right? Types of action. Self and not-self, they're actions that we can take on. And to evaluate them as to whether they are actions causing stress or leading to its end. And that is exactly what the Buddha does. He points to the act of creating a sense of self-identity in his terms, I-making and my-making. He points to the act of creating a sense of identity in terms, in his terms, I-making and my-making as a major cause of stress. The not-self teaching is also an action, right? It's a karmic action. It has consequences, just like the I-making and my-making, me-making, that also is an action that has consequences. So action doesn't mean just like reaching and taking something, or kicking a stone is an action, that the view that the mind is taking up in any moment, that's also an intentional action, and the teaching of karma is that intentional actions have consequences. The not-self-teaching is also an action, a perception that is one of many actions employed as part of the path to the ending of stress by bringing that cause to an end. However, the Buddha also found that certain types of self-identity were useful in getting his students to, getting his students started on the path and to motivate them to stay on course until the skills of the path were so mature that, per, that the perception of self was no longer needed. See, that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? And if we took the time, you know, to hear 60 people talk how they got involved in the practice, <coughs> we'd hear a lot of selfing, you know? I was a miserable human being, you know, caught in a lot of bad habits. And then I found this, I found this book. I read it and I was so inspired. I was inspired. I felt the inspiration. I picked myself up by the bootstraps and I showed up at this meditation center and I heard these teachings and I, you know, it would be a lot of eye making in that story, in all of our stories. But that was really useful to take our misery personally, take the possibility of being free from our misery personally, so that we were motivated to follow the instructions. <laughs> That's the piece we miss a lot. I'm speaking from my personal experience about that. Like, how many sits I don't follow the instructions? You know, it's like we have this amazing capacity to circle around the practice, admiring it, avoiding it. And even though outwardly we look like we're doing the practice, you know, we're, we're good in that way because... We don't want to be embarrassed by, you know, moving our body or not showing up. Ever since I, I kind of got out of the groove of being here at the morning sit right at the beginning, since my father was sick and this summer, and 
some of you know, he died in October. And, and uh, it's been really interesting, like looking at that identity of being the one who's always here right when the sit starts at 6.30 in the morning. And it's like, oh, and do, I have, do I have to, you know, and it's like, this is my sense is that, you know, if I run, I, when I get completely free of that attachment, then I can start coming back again. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> I still sit every day, but not always early. So let's see where I left off here. I motivated them to stay on course until the skills of the path were so mature that the perception of self was no longer needed. The perception of not-self would then be used to undercut any clinging to any possible sense of self, thus bringing about full awakening. Because one of the descriptions of awakening, awakening is that it's the end of action, right? Because it's just nature. That's the, you know, freedom. A moment of perfect freedom is a moment of the mind not constructing a sense of a doer. They're still doing, they're still, everything is still moving, happening, including the personality. But there's no insertion of a doer, somebody who has to do something and then is doing it, or avoiding doing it. Every act of perception, including the perception of self and non-self, not-self, would be put aside when awakening is reached. So this is also important to understand, like, the whole idea of self and not-self is only for deluded people. There's no conception of not-self. Why would somebody not clinging to anything in the mind and body construct the concept of not-self in any way to be identified with it? It wouldn't have any meaning unless somebody was teaching, you know? And then even that wouldn't be, it would be just sort of a natural arising. The mind wouldn't be identified even with those concepts, concepts used in teaching. So self and not self, these are pragmatic concepts that we skillfully use as deluded beings who are caught in the habit of clinging. In order to better understand our existential or psychological situation here with a mind and body, with these particular habits of mind, and Ajahn Tanisaro goes on and says, this means that in the Buddhist teachings about the path, both self and not-self are used not as metaphysical tenets, but as strategies, perceptions that are meant to serve a particular purpose along the way and to be put aside when no longer needed, like that simile of the raft. You know, you use it to cross over, and then you leave it alone. And then skipping a little bit, this means that the teachings on self and not-self are answers not to the question of whether or not there is a self, so I was talking about a little bit earlier, but to the question that the Buddha said lies at the beginning of the discernment leading to right view. What, this is an important question, we can bring this up for ourselves, what, when done by me, right, self-view, what, when done by me, will lead to my long-term welfare and happiness? See, from our deluded point of view, that's a relevant question to be asking. What, when done by me, will lead to my long-term happiness? Now, the answer we might get in this moment of our practice is perceive 
mind-body experience is not self. That for another moment in our practice, when our understanding maybe isn't so refined, the stability of attention isn't so refined, that wouldn't be a useful strategy. You know, I would be using a lot of neurotic activity to practice seeing my mind-body experience as not self. And then just another sentence here. What, when done by me, will lead to my long-term welfare and happiness? You find long-term welfare and happiness by learning to use perceptions of self and not self in a skillful way. So I thought, um, before opening it up again, we could look at the Four Noble Truths, which most of you know, which is also, like I mentioned before, all of the Buddhist teachings were pragmatic. So they're teachings to be used uh, in particular time and place, or particular situation. And so it's important, you know, it'd be nice if we had a, a profoundly psychic teacher who could hand us the right teachings at just the right moment, but it's not going to happen. And so we we're learning these teachings, we're committing some of it to memory so that as we're opening to our own experience, to whatever degree we clearly understood the teachings, even on an intellectual level, that conceptual level will line up with some of our experiences. And it will be the cause. That's what perception means, right? We talked about that, or we, we practiced that in our guided meditation tonight. What is perception? Well, there's something that's happening here that somehow is reminding me of this idea, this concept. And so the teachings come online, arising to meet the situation at hand. And that's true with the Four Noble Truths. It's like we're living our life, and uh, fortunately we have a moment of being present, mindful. And in that moment of being mindful, we realize, you know, this hurts. My mind hurts. It's heavy. It's difficult. It's hard to bear. Whatever this is, it's hard to bear. I don't want to have to bear this. I don't want to have to, I don't want to be here. I want this to be other than what it is. So that's the experience of dukkha. And uh, so what the Buddha says, the pragmatic instruction here is to realize that that experience of realizing that this is hard to bear, this moment of life is hard to bear, it's relevant. That it's hard to bear is relevant. It's like a gateway. It's not a problem. in the superficial understanding, if we don't have the teachings of the Four Noble Truths, to illuminate this experience, then the conventional view when we have an experience of this moment being hard to bear is to, you know, find some pleasant experience that will distract us from this moment being hard to bear. You know, we'll go have another drink or we'll go, you know, see if there's anything interesting on the internet or whatever we do to manage our difficult moments in life. But the Buddha says, but this is relevant. And so for us, it's like, 
knowing that it's relevant, we we open to it, we relax with it, we trust it, and we begin to directly, more directly understand the experience of grasping, what we call grasping. And that moves, shifts the mind into the teachings on the second noble truths, the Buddha's very pragmatic understanding that, that uh, this experience of my life being hard to bear is happening here. So whatever the story I have about why this is so difficult for me, this person and I are not getting along at work, and I have to be with this person all the time, and it's really difficult, and even thinking about it drives me crazy, and knowing that I've got to go back there tomorrow. But that's not the second noble truth. That We're still working on the first noble truth at that point. But as soon as we realize that this is hard to bear, that the whole thing is here and now, then there's a shift of ownership. See, this is all selfing, isn't it? It's like, this is happening to me. This is happening in my mind right here. So at this point, it's all very personal. It's useful to own it, like the cause is here. I want to see this. I want to know this. So we listen, you know, we have some sense of like the story's not going to ha- help me because it's here. The grip, the grasping, that activity of selfing, you know, but not that we understand it at this point, but we have some sense that it's being done here. The squeeze, the squeezing is happening here, not, not anywhere else. So the resolution is here. And that's where we start practicing the second noble truth. There is a cause. The cause should be let go of, should be released. The cause of suffering has been released. But this is a natural process, an impersonal process. And so this is where the shift happens. Because we keep missing the second teaching, the second noble truth, when we try to let go of the cause. Because it doesn't go away. It just gets frustrating. We know we're holding, we know we're angry, we know we're identified, and we know we shouldn't be, and we, but we can't let go, and we get frustrated. So, because what we're supposed to do is not uh, personally let go, what we're supposed to do is realize, it's a realization, it's a deepening of understanding, this should be let go of. That's not the same as saying, let go, idiot. <laughs> It's a recognition, it's a realization, there's an understanding that comes online. Oh, this should be let go of. This holding, this squeezing of the heart is not functional. It's not helping. It's not self. It's just habit. It's just what's happening. And we have to keep seeing that until letting go happens. And then the mind realizes letting go has happened. You know, this heart isn't squeezing itself. Ajahn Tanisaro has a great line here. I think it's him. It could be Andy Olensky. I can track it down real quick. I 
it is handy. This is that article I mentioned earlier, self is a verb. So he says, um, when an object is known by means of an organ, like the eye is an organ that knows a visual object, or the ear is an organ that knows an auditory object, a moment of contact is born. This is an elemental unit of experience upon which our world of experience is constructed, and is an event that occurs rather than an entity that exists. Perception and feeling also arise in conjunction with this moment of contact, and the whole arisen bundle is further conditioned by a particular intentional stance or attitude, mental formations. All this amounts to an elegant but selfless, interdependent arising of physical and mental phenomena, what we call the five aggregates. And Andy goes on and says, in response to the presentation of information at the sense door, it functions similarly for a suffering worldling, an ordinary person, or an awakened Buddha, right? So this is happening to everyone. There's nothing we can do about this experience of contact and the perception, the feeling that happens with that. And then Andy goes on, he says, the cause of constructing a self begins as an uninformed response to the texture of the ensuing feeling tone. So this a lot of us have heard and learned and practiced. It's all about the feeling that arises in conjunction with contact. And what is the mind doing with that feeling? So this, at this level, and now we're getting to the, we're back now at the second noble truth, where because we realized that this moment being hard to bear was relevant, and we didn't run from it, or we're not in denial of it, then we settled into that experience, and we realized there's a feeling that I don't like. Right? And then I struggle, or there's a feeling I like and I want it to last, and then I struggle. So we're in that place of seeing feeling and seeing the reaction, and eventually discerning that the reaction to feeling is stressful. Having to react to feeling is stressful. Having to ignore neutral feelings is stressful. Wanting to have pleasant feelings continue is stressful. Wanting to get rid of unpleasant feelings is stressful. Like Kay mentioned earlier, um, when she was sharing about her sit, where she sat, you know, and there was a lot of physical discomfort, and then something shifted, right? She had a different relationship to the unpleasantness that was there in the body. And what was a moment ago hard to bear, being a human being with a painful body is hard to bear, all of a sudden wasn't hard to bear. Now what happened? She stood, the body, you know, in a sort of objective sense, you know, the body and the years of stress on that body or the injuries or whatever, you know, that sort of characteristic of that body that Kay has, whatever that is didn't shift suddenly. There was not some chemical or whatever biological transformation of the body. What shifted was an understanding what the mind was doing with the feeling tone the unpleasantness of sensation. What was the view 
of the mind knowing the feeling. I feel it or not. Desire is a state, I like this here, this is where I was trying to get to. So first, just to repeat, the process of constructing a self begins with an uninformed response to the texture of the ensuing feeling tone. Desire is the state is a state of disequilibrium between what is arising and what one one wants to be arising. Right? So that's true with pleasant or unpleasant. Later he says, in either case, desire can only manifest, or craving can only manifest when a person who desires is created. The self, as a noun, is created as the imaginary subject of desire through an event that English won't even let us name, selfing. The self is created as a subject of desire, right? So later in this article, he talks about how grasping is the cause for the self to arise, right? The habit is grasping, wanting pleasant, wanting to get rid of unpleasant. So that process of grasping needs a self. So you know how we talk about this experiment that's been done where um, they you know, do a little painful sensation in somebody's arm and they move their arm and they have some way of detecting when the person decides to move their arm and they find that the decision to move the arm happens... Um, how do you say this? Um, that the uh, yeah the decision to move the arm happens after the arm moves, and uh, it's a little bit like this too, where the sense of self is a, in a sense an afterthought to make the grasping make sense. You see, and so in that way, self—it's easier to understand self as a part of a story because. We're in this habit of grasping, pleasant and unpleasant. You, and you see it like it's built into the biology of living beings to move away from what's unpleasant, to gravitate towards pleasant. So then when you add to that sort of basic instinct of living beings, the part of the mind that thinks and understands this, then you see that we need to create a self who's doing that. But we feel compelled. The language, the cognitive process feels compelled to tell a story that makes the activity of living, of survival, make sense. But the, the trouble is that's like the original sin, right? You know, where the construction of a sense of self has all kinds of ramifications. It sort of feeds the psycho, creates a whole other dimension of dukkha. There's the ordinary dukkha of being a living being that wants this and doesn't want this and sometimes gets what it wants, sometimes loses what it wants, sometimes gets what it doesn't want. But creating a sense of the self who wants to survive, who doesn't want to die, or wants Ben and Jerry's ice cream, but doesn't want spinach or whatever, all of a sudden has all these endless reverberations reverberations. Andy quotes the Buddha here, and then I'll open it up. When there is a self, 
there is what belongs to myself. When there is what belongs to myself, there is a self. This is the way leading to the origination of self. One regards all phenomena thus. This is mine, this is me, this is myself. This is the way leading to the cessation of self. One regards all phenomena thus. This is not mine, this is not me, this is not myself. So we'll pick this up again <clears throat> next week, continue talking about the Four Noble Truths in light of the uh, teachings on anatta, but we have about seven, eight minutes. You might have some thoughts from your own practice or questions. Yeah, Caroline. Nice and loud. Uh, the first question is about... Actually, why don't we shut the fan off? Steve, would you shut the fan off? Thanks. How does the word self-relate to the word personality? Uh, I think the personality view is um, equivalent to self-view. It's hard to, to not have a sense that personality is real. Well, it is real. It's definitely real. Remember, there's different ways to perceive this, right? And... But no matter how we perceive this, there is something that we need a word for. Let's just call it personality. There's definitely something like the mind's conditioned in a certain way. And so given certain circumstances, you're going, the body and mind is going to express itself in particular ways. And we can call that personality. And we can take that personally. In some moments, it might actually make sense to take it personally. And in other moments, it doesn't, it isn't helpful to take it personally. That's a better way to think about it. So self-view or personality view, it's really referring to the mind being stuck. It's rigid. It can only take the personality, the tendencies of the mind, the actions of the mind and body personally. It's imputing as if there's something static or permanent to which this activity we call the personality refers to. So if I, if I conceptualize personality as something that changes over time, is that not self? <clears throat> yeah, there's, there's a number of ways to be skillful with a personality, uh, recognizing that it, it's an ongoing process, like an evolving process, realizing that it's effortless, like how the pers personality manifests in any moment doesn't require somebody doing it, but it's a natural arising. So the things that make us laugh, that the laughter, there doesn't need to be an insertion of somebody doing the laughing, but there's just laughing happening. Now the personality's laughing, now the personality's crying, now the personality's confused, now the personality's clear. And to really see that activity of the personality as being a movement of nature, there's no, there is something, but there's just no center to it. And there are many examples of this in nature, you know, all of nature really. But some are just more obvious where something clearly is happening and it's a, has a real coherence, but there's no permanent center to that coherent pattern that's unflowing, uh, unfolding. And we see that a lot in nature, you know, that, like I always like, um, you know, like weather is such a nice example because days, certain days have just like very distinct 
weather patterns. You know, and it's it's a very clearly coherent thing that's happening. You know, the perfect summer day or whatever it might be. But there's no center to that. But it's totally appropriate to say, you know, to make it a noun in terms of interacting and communicating with each other. But we're not fooled. We know. I mean, maybe we are fooled. But when we consider, we know that there isn't any sunny day here. You know, where is the sunny day or the cold day? It doesn't have a location or a center. It isn't a thing. It's this process. What else comes to mind? Or experiences that you might uh, that seem relevant, maybe good to share with the group. And next week, of course, we have small groups. Yeah, Rebecca. Um, well, what you were talking about tonight with the grappling with the duka and the releasing of it. And I talked to you two weeks ago. I was grappling with this duka, and, and uh, that night, two weeks ago in class, you know, the, like you talked about the bubble pop, and um, you know, it's still been clear. Um, but I just noticed. Um, when that happened, when that release happened, it was so, um, it was so much deeper than thought. You know, there was, before that, there was the thinking I shouldn't, you know, I don't want this to be like this, and then, oh, I shouldn't be thinking this, this is hurting me. But then, you know, a lot of those concepts. And then, but just holding that and not distracting away from it is really what I did for about a month and a half, and then it just popped. But it was so much deeper than anything thinking. And I don't know how to describe that other than it was just, it was way below any kind of thinking or concepts. I don't know if that's... We call it freedom. Okay. Yeah. Because the mind, the mind, when the mind releases grasping, it loses its formed nature. And uh, so... You know, it's hard to talk about the unformed, what's not formed, because it's, you know, it's not bounded by form. It's not constricted by form. So that's why, you know, liberation, freedom, and these moments of liberation and freedom, uh, we don't want to just imagine at the end of the path, you know, because the mind is the mind is always in this experience of becoming more formed, more restricted, more bound, and becoming less bound, less restricted. So this dynamic is happening all the time, but we tend not to observe because one, it's subtle, and two, it's disconcerting. So that's why it's really useful, that's why it's useful to have a class on anatta, because this becomes less disconcerting this um, malleable sense of self or, or sense of what this is, we realize, oh, it's totally appropriate for it to be fluid. So now we can start a pay, uh, paying attention to the fluid sense of self. Instead of getting caught in a debate, is there a self or is there not a self? Just whatever it is, what is it? You know, well, sometimes it's really tight and constricted and feels very real. You know, I'm really here. And other times, it seems much more like space or more fluid or less tightly bound. And everything in between those spectrums, those ends of the spectrum. It's nine o'clock, so we get to let go of the words. 
Thanks, Steve, for uh, tracking down that article. And uh, do you have it now, what you need, the name of it? Self is a verb, a verb, spring 05 and tricycle. Great, thanks. Just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.